Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Stormblast. I don't know if you saw that. Posted that in secret history. Preservation said that he hadn't drawn his knife in several millennia. I did see that. I did not pick that up or I didn't make that connection. That's a good catch, man. That totally means that Ruin did kill Elendi's friend. Fedek. Fedek. I don't know how I remember that, but. <laughs> uh, we're immersing ourselves. Yeah. One character that shows up only once. Pretty much just to die. <laughs> and dies immediately. Yeah. But he's significant. I want to know, like, why or what stabs him. Well, if Elendi or any of the people who had the same philosophy as him had released the power at the Well of Ascension, it would have ended the world. But we'll get to that. Should I start this up and read us in here? I have like a short intro. Yeah, please. So this being episode three of our three episode kind of intro to the Mistborn trilogy. We've already worked through episodes one and two. If you haven't listened to those yet, you should go back and listen all the way through. Each of these episodes kind of builds on the next one, and it's a way of setting up the situation on Skadrial, the history behind everything, and why things are the way they are when we start page one of Mistborn, of the prologue. So in episode one of Mistborn Spoilers, we discussed the shattering of Adonalsium, Investiture, and the kind of the base well, of the Cosmere to just lay groundwork for a solid understanding of what's happening on Skatrial, like I said. Episode two, we discussed Rashek, Elendi, and Quan, and events on Skadriel that led up to the ascension of the Lord Ruler. And so in this third and sort of final preliminary episode of Mistborn Spoilers, we're just going to walk through the events of the ascension itself and the foundation of the final empire, which has existed for a thousand years on page one of Mistborn, a final empire, book one. So at the end of the episode, we walked listeners right up to the moment of Rashek's ascension and Elendi... We read his final journal entry that in the morning he's going to wake up and enter the Well of Ascension. And of course, well, my headcanon is that he never wakes up because Rashek murdered him in his sleep. Oh, yeah. I think he died that night. Yeah. 
But I wanted to say it pretty clearly before we even start. That act of betrayal and the assassination of Elendi definitely saved the world. If Elendi had been able to enter the Well of Ascension and release the power there that was imprisoning Ruin, Ruin would have been free to destroy the world as he tries to do in the third book of the Mistborn trilogy. And so when Reshik takes the power of Ascension, he burns through it really quickly. So there's almost like this big bang effect where he can do the biggest things in the beginning when he first gets the power. Yeah. But that's also when he has the least understanding of how the power works. The longer he holds it, the more understanding he gets. Yeah. And it's like you said, it's a there's a kind of time limit here. I don't know that we get like an exact amount of time for how that works exactly. But Rashik takes the power of the well for himself in quotes and he like ascends to godhood just for a short time. And it's like you said, it slowly burns out like a lighting a match or like burning a metal. You know, there's literally a physical amount of molten metal in the well, and he burns through it like burning a metal. And that gives him a limited amount of power. And he starts off by doing the big things first. While holding the power, his mind kind of slowly expands with it. But so we see his biggest mistakes come at the beginning, it seems like, when he first ascends. And he has all these powers, but he doesn't have... And even knowledge, but he doesn't have the wisdom to use it. Like trying to do surgery with an axe. Right. <laughs> and later we see him, he gains some of that finesse just by being able to do much subtler things, but they require a lot less power. So the first thing he did was move the planet really close to the sun. Yeah. In an attempt to destroy the deepness, he moves the planet closer to its star. And so he's, try he's trying to burn the mist away. That's what's happening here. And, of course, it works, but it also scorches the planet and makes it into an unlivable place for anything at all. It's basically, you know, burning your hand off to get the germs off of it, you know, after you go to the bathroom. It's like that's a little overkill. Like that may not have been the right solution for the problem of the deepness. It works to a degree, but it also creates its own set of problems, which is kind of what we were talking about. So he has the power to institute these solutions or what seems like it would be a solution. But of course, all those solutions come with their own problems. So in order to cope with the fact that Skadriel is now too close to its star for any, anything to survive on it, Rashik, who will soon be calling himself the Lord Ruler, creates the ash mounts to throw up dust in, into the atmosphere to try to bounce light back out into space or the intense rays from the star. He's overcorrecting. Like he's gone too far close to the sun, but now he doesn't have the power to really move the planet anymore. So he creates the ash mounts. Right. They create another whole situation for people, which is they have to live in a place where there's not enough light for plants to grow and there's constantly inhaling ash. So as a result of this, Rashik has to alter all the life on the planet so that it can survive in this dramatically altered atmosphere and in turn alter the functions of all the life forms. For instance, to eat plants that are now less nutritious. So he makes plants that can survive with less sun, but then they provide less nutrients. So there are not enough calories for humans to survive. So he has to change how the internal functions of humans work and and the animals that survive off those plants. Yeah. And then, you know, 
it's all downgraded. The kind of canon is that very few animals other than I think it was like dogs, a few horses and human beings survived the ascension. Rashik's ascension. And, you know, this is the loss of flowers. Right. When Skadril is said to be very Earth-like before Rashik's ascension. So green plants, yellow sun, blue sky. And afterward, it's a red sun, gray sky, brown plants. There's very little color in the environment at all. They scoff at the idea of green plants. Everything's brown. Ridiculous. <laughs> green plants. What kind of stupid? You might as well have them be purple. Like, what kind of stupid color is that? That comes up a couple of times. <laughs> so now there's still at least one or two more problems. One, there's ash just piling up everywhere that will eventually bury everything. Um, so he's got to do something about that. And I saw on Coppermind and a couple other places that I don't know if this is true, but there were some um, references to plant life that can eat the ash, but also microbes are referenced a bunch in the trilogy. So he creates a special bacteria that will eat the ashes and help break it down. We need something like that that can deal with plastic. Yeah, I think that might be a thing. Are there somebody working on that? I think they're trying to breed microbes that can eat through plastic. Get on it, science. Because, you know, we've got the big trash island in the in the ocean of microplastics. It's always a fun one. Uh, and I said this already, but the so the physiology of mankind is altered by the Lord Ruler also. And this is important because Rashik, at that time when he was altering how human bodies work, created what he called the balance. So he made two kind of separate castes of humanity, one being the nobleman that he made taller, stronger more intelligent, but less fertile, and everyone else except Terrasmen into a race known as the Ska, who are shorter, hardier, and much more fertile. And they're certainly slightly different, but they can interbreed, so they are the same species. And we assume that by the time we get to the prologue of Mistborns, there's been enough interbreeding that there's really very little difference, if any, left, other than Allomancy, which is also trickled out of noble bloodlines and into non-noble bloodlines. Yeah. I think, as I said before, life finds a way. You can't stop people from sleeping with each other. They really, they really will. The Lord Ruler tried. It didn't work. So there's a little bit more to it, and I didn't want to get into a crazy amount of fine detail, but basically the Lord Ruler and the way that the world was changed, there are places that are really hot, and there are ash mounts that can control some of that. And so the the places that are left that are livable are the north and south poles of the planet. The North Pole is the current location of the final empire. And that's why, you know, when the Well of Ascension was in the north, literally, it's the most northern place you can possibly get, the North Pole. Yes. But he was worried that the changes he made to their physiology might kill them in the long run or there would be some unforeseen consequence. So as a kind of control group, he left some intact humans the way they were on the South Pole far removed from his society that he was going to create and just kind of left them there. For some reason, they were able to survive by themselves. Kelsier talks to them in Secret History and you said there's some error too. I'm not actually done with error too. In the third book of Wax and Wayne. Uh, I'm almost there. No spoilers, but he encounters them. Okay. (laughs) 
So now, in hindsight, Reshek then flattens the mountains of Terrace to hide the original location of the Well of Ascension and creates mountains to the north of there of what had been Terrace to kind of further confuse matters because he knows that the well will eventually fill up again and he wants to be prepared to um, take the power once again and I suppose fix the mistakes that he made as well as prevent any other would-be hero of finding the true location of the well. So I'm a little confused about north because if the well is at the pole, isn't everywhere from the pole south? From what I read, he shifted the crust but not the magnetic poles. So he rotated the way the land was, but not the magnetic poles. It's a little confusing to try to visualize, I know. That's why I didn't want to get too far into it. <laughs> There's some pretty good descriptions out there of how that works, but yes, I think the well's at what magnetic north would be. Did he actually move the well, or did he just move the planet, the crust? The crust. I believe the well would stay in place because it's... Uh, what you call a perpendicularity so it doesn't just exist in the physical realm but also in the other realms right so we had to move the rest of the world around it flattens the mountains or moves the mountains to another place so that the well is no longer in the mountains that's i guess what i was getting at is does he just rotate the crust or does he actually like flatten the mountains and push them up somewhere else does discord want to throw anything out at me we are not getting a consensus. People's headcanon seems to be that either he moved the well from where it was or rotated the crust of the earth. So the well stays in the same place, but he moves the physical location of the well in that way. <laughs> so, does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess my question is, did he also change the spin of the planet? It's kind of effectively the same thing, those two things. Effectively. Rotating the crust of the Earth and... I guess rotating it relative to what? The poles. So just the magnetic poles. He just shifted the land. Right. So there's magnetic poles, but there's also rotational poles. Okay, yeah. And those don't have to be the same thing. Matter of fact, ours are off by, what is it, like 14 degrees? Yeah, a little bit. So when he says the well is at the North Pole, or when we say Lutherdell is at the North Pole... Is that the magnetic North Pole or is that the rotational North Pole? I don't know that it's specified. The point being that north, the North Mountains where the well is or was when Reshik went to it, he changed that so it wouldn't be recognizable. Right. And put mountains in a place that would mislead anyone who was looking for it based on historical documents. You'd head north to the mountains and that's totally out of the way because the well's sitting in the middle of Luthadel. And in the middle of the central dominance. Okay, Luthadel is at the magnetic North Pole. When Reshik moved the well, the magnetic North Pole moved with it. As a result, all compasses point towards Luthadel. Geographically, however, Luthadel rests at a more temperate latitude. Good job, Thug Septon. So, after this, Reshik knows that the ferrochemists of his homeland would be difficult to control because of the knowledge in their copper mines. And they certainly wouldn't want to accept him as their leader because he had just murdered their leader, Elendi. So Reshek offers them a bargain. Hell of a bargain this is. <laughs> so if he just murdered their leader, I mean, he is of their people. The leader, the hero was not. But they had accepted Elendi as... As the hero. Yeah. Reshek is a part of this small group of dissenters, essentially. 
Well, I guess he made all of the ferrochemists in the Mist Wraiths, and he only turned his buddies back into Chondra. So anyone capable of ferrochemy, he gave this deal, essentially, that you have you give up your powers and you give up your humanity and you I'll let you live forever as a Chondra. I thought it was just his buddy ferrochemists, not all the ferrochemists. I believe he destroyed all of them because his his oversight says that notes was that he didn't destroy all terracemen. He just removed all the ferrochemists who were alive, but there were still ferrochemy latent in their DNA. So there were still fer- ferrochemists born. Right. Totally. After that. But the ones who he gave, who he created Chondra out of and who he gave the spikes to the first generation, I thought that was only a small select group of the feral chemists. I was thinking it was all of them. But now that you say that, how many are there even? Because who otherwise the mist wraiths wouldn't have been able to breed. There had to be some feral chemists that stayed as mist wraiths out in the wild. Yeah, that's an important point. I think that I'm, what I'm thinking is that he took all the Farukamists who were alive and turned them into mist wraiths. Yes. These special ones, he gave them back their sentience. Through the spikes. Right. So he didn't do that for all of them. Just, just like a hundred or something? I thought it was like a dozen. I thought a generation one was uh, only a dozen, like ten or a dozen, yeah. So that's literally just the group that was with him at the well. But isn't Generation 1 small in part because of the like the wars against them that had happened? Like, didn't some die? Or is all of Generation 1 intact? I want to say they stayed in hiding and, well, you know, you could be right about that. We know some were killed from Tensoon, which is why they eventually went into hiding, because they say humans were jealous of their powers. The first generation of Chondro were made up of Rashik's friends, Elendi's 10 Pac-Men. They were all ferrochemists. Okay. So it is 10. And I think we see all 10. Mm-hmm. Lots of the second generation die. I see. Yeah, that's that makes sense. There's wars and stuff. Most of the second generation disappears. And actually, none of the second generation survives until Wax and Wayne. You mean they're all dead by then? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Tensoon is the third. By the time Era 2 comes around, the thirds are the most powerful generation. Because the firsts, I think, die at the end of Era 1. Yeah, all the firsts unspike themselves, like Thug Septon is saying here. Well, Tensoon unspikes himself as well. He, he just gets respiked. They do fine. They just lose some of their memory because of the degradation of hemorrhagy when it's outside of a body. But Tensoon complains about lost memories. But they're eventually respiked. Yes. After the threat, I, I, I assume Harmony respikes them after the threat of ruin is gone. That's sensible. In the reorganization of the the world, I would assume he respiked them. That sounds like something Cezad would do. Oh, but <laughs> bringing it back around at that time with Rachek's expanded mind, he also is able to come up with the plans to create Coloss and Inquisitors. These yes. are like his three major hemallergic achievements. He gains full knowledge of all three metallurgies and so he's able to actually create the perfect spy the perfect soldier and the perfect administrator religious figure yeah so he creates them and that's all done by taking somebody else's life and putting it into somebody else a coloss is four men nailed together (laughs) sounds well five if you count the person they're nailed into that sounds right, yeah. 
But it's four spikes, and those are just normal people. Those are non allomancers, allomancers, or ferrochemists. Um, whereas Inquisitors takes Allomancers to make, and there's more spikes. Inquisitors, you can sort of use as many spikes as you want. It's the more spikes you have, the more powerful you get. The Chandra have the least, just two. Does that mean two dead people or two spikes through one dead person go into the Mistwraith to make a Chandra? At least two dead people, because one spike kills one person. I think, yeah. My only question is, I don't know if those spikes have to be from a ferrochemist to make a chondra or do they have to be from a normal person or an allomancer because they get these these potencies you know like potency of strength there's four different potencies and it doesn't really specify i don't know how they create those spikes and i think by era two the chondra don't know how to create more but they can't create any more well they can't kill anyone so yeah but i think they said even if we knew how we wouldn't but i don't think they know how Chandra were the third and last of Rashik's creations. And being the last, they're the most subtle. They were created with two hemallergic spikes, which makes them less susceptible to the influence of ruin. You know, he calls them his spies, and we always think it's his spies because they can look like anybody. But the reality is they were spies because ruin thought he had control over them. That's why they always claim to be of preservation and not of ruin, because they were essentially there to betray ruin at the critical moment and pull the spikes out of themselves in order to deprive him of a valuable resource. Yeah, there's four different blessings and there's all explained like the different kinds of metal, but I don't see how the blessings are made. I kind of always assumed that the Condor spikes were created out of other ferrochemists, but that's a headcanon. I'll accept that. <laughs> they're clearly made out of killing somebody the only question is what kind of somebody because that matters what sort of property are you stealing and how do you specify this person has the blessing of potency versus this person has the blessing of it does rely on the type of metal so the blessing of awareness is tin blessing of potency is iron spikes presence is copper stability is zinc and there may be more, but we don't know. But yeah, I, I feel what you're saying. And they feel more like ferrochemical properties to me than alimantic. Kind of. Except they last forever. So they don't. Uh, you don't have to store them and you don't have to burn anything. You just have that. But you can't compound at all. You have what you have and nothing more. Yeah. So after the creation of the hemallergic constructs, Rashek's power really starts fading. And he returns to his regular human terrorisman state of existence, although he's now considered a sliver of preservation. Does, do you think he retains anything from the Ascension? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, other than knowledge, I guess. Because uh, like when we see him die in secret history, he also hangs around for a while and has the ability to like not fade away instantly. And part of that is because he's a sliver of preservation. Gotcha. I think it may also let him be more effective in his burning of metals. Oh, yeah. The, my next point here is um, that I noticed, and I think in the last episode I said something a little bit contrary to this, but um, I noticed that there's a little bit of contention in the fan community about whether Rashik becomes misborn simply from holding the power at the well or from burning a piece of lorassium, or if those two acts have just have the same effect. It would seem to me that once you have the body of 
preservation in you, whether that's Lorassium or the well or even the mists, it seems like that would just grant you the ability to be a mistborn. I'm sort of leaning toward the third because either way you're taking the power of preservation into you. Right. So why would there be any difference? But the important point is that after the arc of Rashik's ascension, when he's coming back down, he walks out not only a full Farukamist. Sorry, you said coming back down. I had to be like, whoa, that was a hell of a trip, man. Oh, something about. Oh, man, I want to do that again. Moving the world in space. It was weird. (laughs) Uh, I I guess I got to wait a thousand years before I can trip on that shit again. Oh, man. Really rare. Really hard to find this stuff. <laughs> Got so high he ascended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he, before he ascended, he was a full ferrochemist. Um, but after he ascended, he's not only a full ferrochemist, but also probably the most powerful Mistborn that's ever lived. And he has full knowledge of hemorrhagy, which he uses to... On himself on and himself. on his followers. Do we know what hemorrhagic spikes he does to himself? What powers he takes on? I've also seen a little bit of back and forth out there that, for instance, the bracelets but up on his arm that are piercing his skin. Some people say that may have the hemallergic qualities, but I always thought the whole point was just that he has ferrochemical storage that goes through his skin, so it can't be affected by alamancers. Okay. So those could be spikes as well as there are a few, probably ATM and gold to make himself more better at um the compounding so his bracers are not the bands of mourning right because those he created and set them up elsewhere so his bracers were probably do you think they were multiple metals were they just gold were they gold and atm would that work like if you combine the metals well that's how he did it with the bands of mourning is he had the the metal was like striped and it's not like a alimantic combination but it's like layered on top of each other so you have different layers and you can access those individually as each layer is an individual metal mind gotcha not the combination thereof so that's why i was wondering if his bracers were just gold for health or if they were also atm because atm is where he stored his age and once he the bracers were ripped away from him he aged very quickly I had always visualized them as gold, but it would make sense if there were several things. Me too, until our conversation in the last episode when we started talking about the fact that in order to stay young, he had to have been ATM compounding, not just gold compounding. Coppermine says his arm bracers are hemallergic spikes filled with an unknown attribute. I don't know that we fi- ever find out what the Lord Ruler spikes are. We just know that he is spiked. I always thought that because his soothing is so powerful and he uses it, to control his Coloss and to control his Chondra and to influence the people around him, that sort of oppressive soothing, I thought, may be his second ability. We have confirmation from Brandon Sanderson that he did use hemorrhagy to pull off his most dramatic effects. And I think his most dramatic effects are his health, his living forever, and his soothing. Yeah. I might throw in the super pushing. The ability to push metals inside somebody's body. Are you able to like throw Vin around? Sure. sure. R- rip her apart from her base component metals. Yeah. And he also knew how to use all three of the different magic systems in their fullest. When he ascended, he gained knowledge. In a complete way. Which was important to point out because later we see Vin's a great Mistborn, but she doesn't even know what all the metals are. Yeah. She still thinks there's like 11, <laughs> which is like 
there's 16, then maybe 18, then maybe another set of 16. Uh, it just keeps going and going and going. Sam Hundred Lives is a pointing out an important fact also that I've seen this a bunch on fan pages that it said that the Lord Ruler, by the time Vin is around, is a full savant in all the medals. He's just burning all of them all the time. So he's like, or maybe not quite a full savant, but close. Yeah, okay. That's what people say. Man, I believe it. I don't think he's burning ATM all the time. Like, I don't think he's an ATM savant. Or I wonder what that would do. Make you see further in the future? <laughs> Probably. See more possibilities? The savant stuff is always just like a you're a better misting. But there's also, of course, drawbacks. And then there's also the, the combo traits. The sort of how you have, if you have a ferrochemical and a allomantic combo, you sort of get this third ability compounding yeah well it's not not even just compounding because that only happens when you when it's the same metal the resonance point so that's something that i don't understand really well Hmm. but something is going on between when you have a ferrochemical ability and an alimantic ability they sort of combine in a way to give you this third slightly different ability an interaction between two powers that makes a third sam says yeah and stormlight with the surges you have two different orders in each uh, or two different powers in each order that creates a third sort of effect. Sauron is pointing out a good example when Shallan and Dalinar interact and they create those maps of the world. Yeah. And so those two powers interacting can create something different. Gotcha. Um, so Rashik starts his conquest of the rest of the continent. Right. So, uh, and that's uh, said to have taken around two centuries. But also, he starts out his conquest by picking nine powerful kings to make an alliance with, and he essentially bribes them with Lorassium. He makes them Alamancers. Yeah. So these become the, the original Alamancers other than Rashik. So there are ten total, nine kings. And we know that these Alamancers have the power to totally take over and control Khandra. They're powerful enough to do the soothing without using Duralamin. They don't know about it, I don't think. The Lord Ruler has only shared the Ten Metals with these folks. I believe so. I also just wanted to point out that they're Nine Kings once again. How many times have we seen the reference to Nine Kings? <laughs> right, the Nine Ring Wraiths. The, the Nine Rings for Mortal Men. Yeah. Oh, Nine Rings for Mortal Men, the Nine Ring Wraiths, right? Those are the Kings, yes, who carry the rings. And then in Wheel of Time, there's the reference, the head nod to the inn called the Nine Kings. Right. Or the nine, is it the Nine Rings or the Nine Kings? Oh, it might be the Nine Rings. I can't remember now. Whatever. But here it is again. The Nine Original Alamancers. And there are other ten dominances. So there's the Nine Kings plus the central dominance for the Lord Ruler, correct? I believe so. Let's look at a map real quick. But I think that's right. And those nine families become the ruling families of the dominances. I believe so. And their descendants are the ones who become the misborn. But they do have a fairly low birth rate, and so I think that leads to a lot of the interbreeding with the Ska. And, you know. And rape. Accidents happen. Well, yes. He bribed the Nine Kingdoms. Set an army of Coloss over anyone who... Anyone who's not complying. Yeah. Also, all these kingdoms are 
weakened by the effects of the deepness. So they all just everyone just lived through that. So there are way less people now than there were right than there were like a year ago. And the ones who are left are starving. Right. So pretty easy to roll over any resistors, especially with Coloss Inquisitors and Mistborn on your side. Coloss is a self-generating army. You send them after some like a group and they essentially will take prisoners and create more soldiers. Any losses are recouped by prisoners. And we see, I think, in Well of Ascension that you can control the population of Coloss by how many swords there are, how many swords you give them. So you can take away their swords or give them more. And if there's more swords, they'll make more Coloss to use them. They are limited by the number of spikes, though. Yes. But I think that if you have a Coloss with no sword, he's very quickly just killed. And that's why it limits their population is because creating any excess Coloss without a sword, dead. Yeah. I think that's a bit of a red herring because the other way to control their population is by controlling the number of spikes. Sure. Access to. So it takes approximately two centuries to conquer the world. There's some pockets of resistance, but none lasts for more than four or five centuries. And the fact that the religion lasts longer is one of the reasons Kelsier is so interested in creating a religion, because he sees them as more verbose, more resistant to the destruction of the Lord Ruler. And Kelsier uh, definitely happens upon a very strong instinct in all people, which is survive. You know, that's a very, very base instinct. Yeah, I have Jaism here listed as the, the most resilient one. I didn't think Jawism lasted very long because everyone said praise Jaw. I thought it was one of the ones where like everyone was super dedicated. Yeah. They got wiped out really quickly. I had Jawism as the longest lasting one or one of the longest lasting ones. I thought it was one of the first ones to get killed out. It was very easy to find them because they always said praise Jaw after everything they said. If I'm remembering um, Sayzad's story correctly. Oh, Sayzad tells Kelsier about Jawism when Kelsier asked about a religion, a powerful religion. Mm hmm. It's powerful, but it doesn't last very long. He calls it powerful because it inspires dedication in its followers. With this other Coppermind article, it looks like I have some conflicting sources, but I'm going to trust Coppermind that says was destroyed. Jaism was destroyed shortly after the ascension of Lord Ruler because its adherents were not difficult to find. No. However, they had to kill every last one. So it made it powerful because no one converted. Reshek establishes his capital city of Luthadel. With his own palace at his heart, right on top of the Well of Ascension. Um, we talked about his compounding. I had that here and why he's able to live for a thousand years, be 25 forever or almost forever. Yeah, we talked about that a bit in the last episode, I think. Except when he has to occasionally be old. Yeah. From what I've read, nobody's sure why he does that. Like he shouldn't have to. Oh, I thought it was so he could store that initial little bit of age. I mean, more is always better, I guess. <laughs> that's what i thought when i saw the when i saw that you have to be old for a little while to put a little bit of youth into because remember we talked about the four stages of compounding store burn store use slowly and so that initial store has to happen at some point and so he would have to at least present as a little bit older i guess so i hardly understand compounding it's kind of complicated well you described it well in the last episode and how it works so it looks like being aged just helps him recharge periodically. It, he doesn't have to. And why not save more? Why not save as much as you could of right. every quality? Right. He's waiting for the well to refill so he can take the power again. 
wants to go on that second trip. Yeah. <laughs> well, he wants to fix all the mistakes he made. You know, he's had time to think about like, oh, well, maybe pushing the planet close to the sun may not have been a, the best thing in the world. Like, he thinks he can take that power up again and fix a lot of the things that he did wrong and actually create a decent world but he has to keep this bullshit world together for a thousand years exactly (laughs) the final empire really is a holding pattern it is like well i got to keep these folks going for a thousand years until i can fix all the things that i screwed up i guess it'll just be awful for a thousand years i'll do my best but and to someone who can live forever it's really you know Mankind suffers for a thousand years and then, well, they'll get back to this later, you know, or live almost forever. He was very much a a pragmatist, I think, the Lord Ruler was. He was in no way particularly talented or a genius, but he did what he could, and that was good enough to keep the world alive, but not good enough to keep people happy. Right, at least he didn't destroy the world. At least he didn't destroy the world. He just kind of messed it up. Elendi would have. Yeah. So, like I said at the very beginning of this, Rashik's betrayal and murder of Elendi saved the world. That is true. And was at the command of Quan. Yeah. So thanks, Quan. But during this time, after the ascension, after Rashik's ascension, he spikes himself and Ruin starts to whisper in his ear. And we know that there have been subtle influences over time. I even have a little headcanon that by after the end of a thousand years... Rashik is a little crazed. Possibly. His thoughts are twisted by it Ruin's influence. That he thinks he's doing good, but a lot of what Ruin is doing is creating a very destructive world for people to live in. You know, by the end of the, the Final Empire, it is, uh, it's set to burst. This thing is set to fall apart. It's all held together by this one guy. And if anything happens to the Lord Ruler, Ruin is ready to... The only issue with basing your immortal empire around you being immortal is if you're not truly immortal. Right. <laughs> Which he is and is not. No, I mean, he he has the ability to not age and not die and heal from almost every wound, as long as he's holding on to those chunks of metal. Yeah, exactly. Until Vin rips them out of him, he's immortal. And which she really shouldn't have been able to do, except at the time she was she was actually using the power of preservation. That's how she was able to pull the the bracers out of his skin. Also during this time, I suspect that the Lord Ruler knew that Ruin was going to be influencing him because he also starts performing these measures that would protect humanity somewhat should Ruin ever break free. He's hiding the ATM, which weakens Ruin as much as possible. Well, he had to know that with the thousand year deadline coming up, it had to go one of two ways. Either he'd be able to use the power up again and fix some of the issues and create a better world while still keeping Ruin imprisoned or Ruin would get out and then things were going to go sideways. Right. I like the extent of work he did to hide the ATM was actually pretty impressive. Having it shipped in shipments of other metals so that Ruin couldn't see what was happening or where his body was. And I love the fact that the nodes were cracked inside a sealed metal room and then the nodes were shipped back to Luthendel, but they didn't have the ATM inside of them. Yeah. And then the ATM just went right to the Chondra, like, next door. <laughs> he just never moved it anywhere. He just stored it all in the Chondra homeland. Right, except for the very small amounts he smuggles out at right. the cell to noblemen. Which eventually goes back to the Chondra, because that's how you hire Chondra, is with small amounts of ATM. Right. Or it gets burned. 
Reshek also begins digging the storage caverns beneath several cities that are have metal-rich soil. The central dominance is riddled with caves. Between the pits of Hathsin, the homeland, which is big, uh, and then all the pits that the Lord Ruler dug, there's like holes all over the place. Mining's really important. So I imagine some of it's man-made, some of it's not, some of it's conjure-made. Uh, and he built these caverns, stores food, water, other survival necessities. And, you know, of course, these are sh- shelters in a time of great need. And he adds the metal plates, giving clues to where the other caverns might be and um, some small amount of information on how to maybe defeat Ruin. And he, did you talk about the other metals? The knowledge of more metals, mm-hmm. the inscriptions in the caverns. Right. So he doesn't he tell us about Duralamin? I believe so, yeah. Even though they had already found out about it. Uh-huh. What were the other ones that they found out about? Electrum. Thank you, Shapoopy. And which, what does Electrum do again? It allows you to see your own future or something like that, as opposed to the future of everything around you. What I thought Electrum was the one that they use as like an anti-ATM, so it, it oh. nulls the effects. Yeah, so it... It allows you to see your future rather than the future of the person in front of you. Not your alternate self, but the... Am I getting that right? Poor man's ATM. Okay, I kind of see how it works. By seeing your own future, you're able to then change... You know, you can see your own, yourself dying and then you don't go that way. And so that's why you don't, like, get stabbed by an ATM person. That leads us to the last little bit, which is essentially we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the way the, not just the central dominance, but the final empire is structured, how the government works, how the Lord Ruler set it up. Do you want to start with the steel ministry? Uh, Yeah, sure. And so this is basically the bureaucracy that rules the final empire, and it's fanatically loyal to the Lord Ruler. Yeah, the Steel Ministry is made up of the Steel Inquisitors. As well as the Obligators. They're considered all part of... Yes. Okay. So the Steel Ministry contains four cantons, basically four organizations within the Steel Ministry. The Canton of Inquisition is the one the Steel Inquisitors belong to. And they're sort of the law enforcement, the enforcers, the they're the muscle. Right. The Canton of Resource deals with trade and ta- they're the tax got, tax man. Basically, they collect the money. The Canton of Finance. It's the bank of the final empire. And then the Canton of Orthodoxy is sort of the religion. So this is – it's a combination IRS, Catholic Church, police force. Yeah. That's okay. pretty much what you need yeah. <laughs> to run a civilization. And they're all just fanatically loyal to the Lord Ruler. And there's a bunch of internal politics going on between the Steel Inquisitors that want to rule and um, the Canton of Orthodoxy, which basically are is the religious folks. And they're right. they're currently in charge, basically. And we see that actually Vin's existence leads to the overthrow of the Obligators by the Steel Inquisitors. And are all in- Obligators mistings? No. Inquisitors start as mistings. Yes. So obligators can be non-magical people who are just paper pushers, you know, bureaucrats. Although they're often of noble families and have the lineage to be allomancers. And oftentimes the idea is to – if you can make an inquisitor out of a full mistborn, then they start off with all eight powers and you only have to add a couple. So it's much more worth it. If you can convert a Mistborn into a Inquisitor. However, that's very rare. So most of the Inquisitors are actually 
seekers because that's the most useful skill. If you give someone, if they're already a Mistborn seeker and you give them another, another spike. Seeker misting. Yeah. Then they can pierce copper clouds and that's how they're able to find more mistings that they can turn into more. Either sacrifices or a new inquisitor. Most steel inquisitors are made out of bronze mistings. Right. Like Marsh. That's one of the reasons why they're so interested in him. And we touched on this a little bit. Obligators are like called to witness marriages or contracts or agreements between noblemen. And they make note of those deals and take a small price for doing that job. Basically, the kind of early mafia. <laughs> <laughs> it's also the DMV, right? Like it's, it's bureaucrats and protection and everything all rolled up into one. Mm hmm. And they're spies, too. They're spying on the nobles and reporting all of that back. So they have an incredible amount of information stored up on anyone who's important. The obligators control the nobles. The nobles control the ska. The Lord Ruler controls the obligators. And I think their rank is denoted by the tattoos that kind of are like in, around the eyes. Yeah. So the, the higher in rank you go, the more tattoos you get. You get face tattooed. <laughs> And then the, of course, the seal inquisitors get the ultimate face piercing, the spikes through the eyes. <laughs> but a, a lot of the steel inquisitors have the eye tattoos as well. Right. I think that's just rank. And it's also they're made out of high ranking obligators. So they would have the tattoos before they're made into the inquisitors. Like Marsh or at least promising obligators. Right. And then I guess just the one last thing we want to talk about is the organization of the dominances. Right. So there's, let's see here. It looks like nine. There's nine plus the southern Nine plus the central. Okay, I was just looking at a map and trying to count. So there's central one, northern two, eastern three, western four, southern five, terrace six, farmost seven, crescent eight, southern islands nine, remote dominance ten. And a lot of those we just don't know a lot about. You know, most of the story does take place in the central dominance. Right. We see a bit later, but not that far outside of the central dominance. It's kind of the main, it's where everything's happening, the center of commerce and all that. Mostly in the city of Luthadel. And these dominances are effectively ruled by the noblemen who are descendants of the nine original Alamancers, or nine original Mistborn, I should say. And so it goes essentially Lord Ruler, Obligators and Inquisitors, the noblemen, and then underneath them, Ska. Ska servants. And there's, a, of course, a whole ranking within the noblemen as well. Ska are property of noblemen who are allowed to lease Ska from the Lord Ruler himself. That's right. The Lord Ruler owns all Ska. Right. And he, I think he owns all the land, too. I think that's right. And there's some kind of basically lease system right. where to get workers, you have to request. It's feudalism. Yeah. He instills feudalism across the entire dominance now, here's my question. What's at the edge? It's called the burn zone. It's where it's still too hot for anything to live. There's just the, the caps, like the south and north poles where humans can live. And then around it is a scorched death valley, is the way I imagine it. I'm pretty sure it's called the burn zone. You don't see it a lot in the books. This is something that I read about. So it's outside of the halo of ash that the ash mounts are putting out. Yeah. And it's also the, like the coldest places on the planet are the only places that are temperate. That are inhabitable. The rest, the rest of the planet is, is too hot to live in. The Burnlands were an area of totally barren desert that covered the majority of Skadriel during the time of the final empire, with the notable exceptions of the magnetic North Pole and part of the southern continent. But are they 
an exception because of the ash mounts or because of the geographical location or both? Um, Rayshak takes the power of the Well of Ascension, moves Skatriel closer to its star to burn away the deepness. Basically, the places on Earth that would have been warm turn into desert, and the final protections that he places leave the poles habitable. Apparently, some people do live in the Burnlands on the edge of the Final Empire. They, like, raid into the Empire for resources and food. Yeah, I think I I remember that, that getting mentioned. It's at the bottom of the article you posted. And the men were referred to as wasted men. Basically, that's where the Coloss were sent when they were not in use as well. And they were just uncontrolled, allowed to kind of roam free out there. That would be a cool book. They also had some technological development that the rest of the Final Empire didn't have because they were locked into stasis by the Lord Ruler. You know, he also, in order to lock down his empire, he didn't want anyone developing technology that could possibly overthrow him. And so he deliberately made sure that... Yeah, doesn't Sezed mention that gunpowder had happened, but the Lord Ruler was like, no, you can't have that. He wanted to make sure that in order to be a long-range fighter, you needed extensive training. So you needed to be a crossbowman. Whereas guns were too easy for anyone to pick up. It's too easy for the populace to become an army with guns. So he got rid of them and destroyed the knowledge of them. 